0: Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottels and Pat Cummings. Around 500 years ago, Columbus took a boat ride to America. The Gutenberg printing press was invented. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake, and the Pope came up with the Doctrine of Discovery, which states that any non-Christian people discovered by European explorers were to be subdued, subjected, and brought to the faith, or massacred. This Vatican directive became the basis for centuries of discriminatory law in both Canada and the United States. This doctrine is the basis for boarding schools of indigenous children, confiscation of land, and overall cruel treatment of the original inhabitants of the land, which... By the way, was not empty. Let's discuss. Warm greetings, everybody. I'm excited about having Sarah Augustine on and uh, from Yak, right now from Yakima. And uh, Sarah, your very good book, uh, The Land Is Not Empty, and it is the uh, following Jesus and dismantling the doctrine of discovery which I knew almost nothing about uh, until I read your book, and now it's on my mind constantly. So welcome, Sarah.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So um, g- give us a little background. You're now working on the your co-chair of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery, and you're also a professor teaching at... Uh, uh, one of the colleges in by Yakima, and uh, you've been involved in various other um, various other projects. Give give us a little bio background uh, about yourself, Sarah.
1: Sure enough, well, um, first uh, I'll just say that I'm living in, in the Lower Yakima Valley on the the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation. That's the Yakima Indian Reservation. And so um, it's really a privilege um, to be able to live here as a guest and as a neighbor. I've been here 18 years on the Yakima lands. And um, <clears throat> I want to acknowledge the elders in this place and, and the ancient ones who have stewarded this land and the sacred waters here um, for time immemorial for untold generations and just acknowledge um, their presence. And I, I have lived here um, these 18 years and I spent a number of years teaching at Heritage University. I'm a sociologist by training and I taught in social science. Um, And then I directed a dispute resolution center for um, a number of years in the city of Yakima. And now I'm the executive director of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. That coalition was co-founded by myself and two Mennonite pastors, two women, Sherry Hostetler and Anita Amstutz and myself in 2014, and so I've been working in that context since 2014, but really um, in a in a paid position, an executive director role for just under a year. Um, so that's really my primary role now, as the director of the coalition.
0: In an overview, I did a I did a, I do an introduction to all of our podcasts, and I did a, a small introduction about the doctrine of discovery, in general, 500 years ago. The Vatican came out with this edict, this this e- expression that if you are um, if you go to a land of non-Christian people, discovered dis- quotes discovered by Europeans, that you have an obligation to subdue, subjectate, uh, convert these people to Christianity, and that is that has been a foundation. Of church belief for five hundred years only recently, kind of being dismantled, and it's created quite a problem. Uh, fill it fill fill in the details there.
1: sure enough. So the doctrine of discovery is really a body of law and policy um, and 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 that body of law and policy came out of um, really three papal bulls originally um, and so, uh, and, and those papal bulls are Dum Diversus, which is 1452, Romanus Pontifex, 1455, and Inter Patera, uh, which is 1493. And so, if you look at it just historically, at that time, the states of Europe, when they had the technology to navigate across oceans to these lands that they hadn't um, explored before, they were really competing with each other for territory. and So the Catholic Church was really sort of serving as the international body, regulatory body, if you want to put it that way. They were sort of the umbrella under which these, these states, um, you know, functioned. And so the Catholic Church, it was in their best interest to set up a system of rules for how that exploration was going to take place. So the doctrine of discovery really sets up the rules for exploration for European states or monarchs, and the way the Catholic Church really termed this was was Christian princes or Christian monarchs. Um, what are the rules for, for you know um, claiming territory? And so discovery—the reason it's called the doctrine of discovery in the United States—we call it the doctrine of first discovery. It's really to say that whichever European state um, sets foot first has the the claim. They have first claim to the land rights of that place. And so the Catholic church then also in these papables sets up sort of a, a, a justification or a moral justification for doing this. And And the the quick and dirty sort of thought is that if there are people that are already there, they're not the same kind of being as, as Christians from Europe. Let's just put it that way simply. And so, so the Christians from Europe are empowered by God. Um, and so so told by the pope or through the vicar of Christ that they have the right to go in and, and that they're doing that in the name of Christ and um, for the glory of God and so they are they are amassing territory for themselves for their own states but also um, all of that land presumably then would fall under the Holy Roman Empire so that so that's really what the what the origins of the doctrine of discovery but that thing was built into our legal canon in the United States in 1823 200 years ago when the series of three Supreme Court decisions, the Marshall decisions said um, you know that the jurisdiction of land and property in the United States was amassed, it fell under the federal government under the doctrine of discovery, this sort of international law. And so in the United States there are hundreds of laws based upon that premise that the appropriate way, to um, to amass land or to have the right to land was by um, first discovery. So basically, by the rule of the Catholic Church or the Pope um, in these original papal bulls. And so John Marshall, the um, the Chief Justice writing the majority decision at this time in this series of Supreme Court decisions, says, "Well, the Native people have lost their land and they've been justly compensated." because they received civilization and Christianity.
0: What, I, what you mentioned is that there was a lot of discussion of whether or not these indigenous people were people. Did they have a soul? I mean, did they, you know, were they, were they humans in a, in a way? And so part of this idea of our expansion and our colonialism and our extract, you know, extracting the wealth and value from these lands was based on the assumption that they were not, and we are we're doing them a favor. We're helping them because we're making them Christians and we're making them civilized. And so it's really a great deal for them is is the bottom line Just-
1: Marshall certainly said that. yeah, I would say that was definitely Marshall's point of view. and or at least you know the 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 line that he was expressing, which probably was the sentiment of the of the majority at that time. And I think, but I think what the Catholic Church was saying, you know in these series of papables is that this was an opportunity for the Church to expand. There were people that could be converted, and if they chose not to convert, then they they were subject to, you know they were really being ordered by God to submit to the authority of the church. Um, and so uh, this is the idea where the you know the priests would come in with the armies. I mean this is especially among the Spanish. And they would read this edict from the church, saying, "You know, you now have the, you know, um, you should rejoice because you know the, the representative of, of God is here to um, to show you the way. And if you choose not to engage in that, then you're going to be killed. We're going to kill you, um, or we're going to subject you to um, perpetual slavery and servitude." So the irony there is that that, that edict was typically read um, in Latin. And so there wasn't really much of a choice there for Native people. Should they, should they choose to want to convert and be part of the Catholic Church? The
0: the, the bumper sticker on the boat's convert or killed. You know that that's a, a simple. Yeah. Greg, what are some of your thoughts about this? When you were were you, were you very familiar with this, Greg, prior to reading a this bit. book? Yeah,
2: but I really appreciated uh, getting a chance to think about it some more. Thanks thanks to uh, prompting by Sarah's work. And, you know, it's pretty incredible uh, just how far people will go to justify a practice that's absolutely uh, abhorrent. And uh, so I thought about it a bit. And of course, at the time of the uh, uh, papal bulls, that would be the uh, late 1400s, mid-late 1400s, we were living at a time of uh, mercantilism, of, of just the origins and the the, the accumulation of capital for capitalism. It wasn't really well-developed capitalism. And and then of course, Sarah points out that John Marshall uses this in 1823, was it? Or 1832, whenever that, that uh, decision was made. And by then, the, the views generally in Europe on international law had changed dramatically. Uh, Grotius in the 1600s, Developed far differently, what international law would be like, law of the seas, and so on. And it was based upon um, real capitalism in the Netherlands and the real emergence of bona fide first-class capitalism. So what does he do? He he's he's a uh, uh, an outlier. He doesn't believe in this doctrine per se. He thinks if you're going to steal the land from the indigenous peoples, you're going to contract with them. You're going to pay for it. So that's the new wrinkle that natural law theory brings in, and here we are in the 19th century with John Marshall reverting all the way back to that time to justify the theft of uh, Native American lands as 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 the uh, Europeans march across the continent. It's just it's just just incredible. So very appreciative that you're bringing this up and the way you're bringing it up. But as I say. Uh, it's almost hilarious, you look at the Dutch when, you know, this may be an apocryphal story, but we've all heard it, they buy Manhattan from the Native Americans, they cheat them out of the lands, rather than using the papal bull to justify the theft of the, uh, of the land. And that, and that story really begins in the 1600s, whether it's apocryphal or not, it was used by the Dutch to show that we don't do things the way the English and the Spanish do. We pay for the land, so we rip them off differently.
0: Yeah, But yeah.
2: Uh, it's a great subject. I, uh, we should explore it some more. Your thoughts on it.
0: When you look at the world's greatest genocides, you're going to see Pol Pot. You're going to see the Holocaust. We don't see what happened in a period of 200 years where the population was... Diminished by ninety-five percent of Indigenous people in this country. You know, I, depending upon how you want to round numbers, but almost one hundred and thirty million people that were killed in off what in what was a pretty short period of time. And um, I, I think what was what was what was interesting about your book is. The land was not empty. The land had a lot of people in in this country, and they were intentionally exterminated.
1: That's right. And you know the 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 sort of common estimate is that there were three hundred million people on the North and South American continents at the time of European discovery called the discovery and 100 million in North America alone. And today in the United States, um, if you look at the last 2020 census, there are 6 million. And that's, that is a generous estimate, 6 million um, indigenous people in the United States today. So going from 100 million to 6 million. I, what I wanna really emphasize and talked about in the book quite a bit was that this was really a matter of domestic policy in the United States by the federal government um, from the time of the Constitution um, till today, or I would say even, even before the signing of the Constitution, on the Declaration of Independence, from that time until today, um, the policy, the domestic policy towards Indigenous people has been complete annihilation. And um, the Doctrine of Discovery, while um, sort of the seeds of it as a a policy structure began with papal bulls um, that has been incorporated into the United States um, legal canon, and therefore it remains the basis of policy to this day. And so, a story that many people don't know is that you know during the time of um, well, there were there were Palestinian intellectuals who went to South Africa and said, "We want to learn about how you created apartheid," because. Um, we want to understand how apartheid works and think about that in our own context. And um, scholars in South Africa said, well, we didn't think it up. You know, we got, we got this idea from um, the United States and Canada to put, put indigenous people on reserves and then free up the rest of the land for the dominant culture to have, you know, setting laws about who would be able to, to own land in that way. And so you know, do you guys remember do you happen to remember the end of the apartheid? I want to say it was like 1989. it was it was a big event in my generation that time. Well,
0: period. I I remember distinctly that uh, Dick Cheney was absolutely against the end of apartheid because he was thoroughly convinced that Mandela was a communist and that we had to fight communism and to his to this day he has never apologized, he has never reconciled his. His 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 beliefs, um, yeah. Oh. And
1: I think I think most people today would sort of acknowledge that apartheid was wrong and not a good thing. And, and so I guess the question is, do you that that was based on our reservation system. And do you know the year that our reservation system came to an end? No, no. It is the law today.
0: Okay, there you go. There
1: you go. So, <laughs> and I think when people talk about the doctor, they really want to talk about it in a historical way. Really, the legal framework
0: of today—it is our law today. You know, after after I quit, uh, 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 uh retired, I worked for three years consulting with Chief Leshi, which is one of the largest um, uh, schools for indigenous people in the actually in the country. So it's a high school, K to twelve high school. I can't remember exactly how many people, but six seven hundred students, and uh, was surprised at how traumatized those kids were that they are there there's a, there's a lot of pain and misery in that population of of students uh, and you talk about this i think better than i've ever heard with the boarding schools which was also part of this doctrine of discovery where you would take population of kids away from their parents canada and the united states and put them in these christian schools and infuse christianity and civilization and structure and routine to these children and in a matter of 2 to 3 generations literally destroyed a culture to the to this day is being uh, felt uh, at at various various schools all over the country. Tell tell me a little bit of tell me about that, and how that relates to the doctrine of discovery.
1: You yeah, bet. I mean, this is one of the one of the policy eras in the United States uh, towards indigenous people. So so the Indian problem, and it was really talked about that way. The Indian problem. What do we do everywhere we go? There they are. You know, how what do we do about them? And there was a plan for assimilation. Um, the reservation era was really designed to um, to put indigenous people on small plots of land, least desirable land. And there was, a, there was a civilizing impulse in there. That was followed by the allotment era when the Allotment Act of 1885 um, took the reservations then and, and broke it up into allotments and assigned family groups to allotted land in the hopes that they would farm because it felt like, you know, they're, they're not they share everything in common. They're not competing with each other. And um, sort of the basis of civilization is competition and selfishness. That we have to instill these things in Native American communities so they can learn to be assimilated, right? They can learn to be civilized. And that was not happening fast enough. It just didn't feel like they were doing it. Even though they were on these reservations and they were on these allotments, they still were not getting with the program. And so the thought was, we're gonna do better if we can invest in a younger generation. If we can take children and isolate them, um, in in the community where I live, we have a sort of a monograph that's called Away from the Barbarous Influences. If we can if we can isolate them from their barbarous influences, we're gonna have a better job of civilizing them. And so kids were put in uh in boarding schools, Christian boarding schools separated from the relatives um, in some cases for 18 years. So their entire education they were separated from their families. Uh, there were children that died when they were in um, in boarding schools and um, their parents were not even notified. Um, they were just completely isolated and in many cases punished for speaking their own language. Of course, it was already a crime to practice your native spirituality and some on some reservations, native people did that in secret and in private. But in these boarding schools, it was impossible to do that, and so there really was this this um, this plan to strip Indigenous people from their culture and language, so that they would be assimilated. And I want to say also that a story that's less known is that it was also policy of the of the War Department in the United States, because it was understood that Indigenous communities or tribes would not um, would not use violence against the nation; they wouldn't. Wage war as long as their children were incarcerated. So there was a big incentive to keep the children incarcerated, and so, um, so essentially, that process of child removal, which did not end by the way with the with the boarding school system, but it was the most effective way of re, of removing indigenous people from their lands ever, because you could say the entire all of these policy eras, the domestic policy was to remove indigenous people from their lands. Whether we're talking about removal, when we're getting Native people, you know, west of the Mississippi, just draining them completely of the East through the reservation system, getting them off of other lands that were considered to be desirable, especially during the gold rush, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we want to get Native people off of these um, lands that are good for homesteading or for mining, um, then. Once they're on reservations, we still want to remove them from those reservations because there's there's stuff we want on the reservation land too. And the best way is to remove Indigenous people or children from the families. It's, it's the easiest, fastest, most effective way to break a tribe.
0: So we're let, let's look at your family. You have your grandparents, your parents, and then you. Were your grandparents in these
1: schools? So my father, who is the, he is a Tewa person, was removed from his family at birth. So he was raised 300 miles away from his kin, his parents, his um, land, his language, his culture, In a, not into the loving arms of an adoptive family, but actually in a in a Catholic institution, and he grew up in a boys' home, a Catholic boys' home, and so, um, to me, he didn't go to a boarding school. He was he was um, caught up in um, in that generation, an entire generation of Indigenous kids that were just removed. And um, when when the United States Congress finally responded to the the fact that Indigenous children were being removed from their homes. Um, at, at, you know, at disproportionate levels, one in four Native American kids um, were living in foster care um, at the time of the congressional study in 1977. Um, so that one in four children were living somewhere else. Um, so
0: what what I mean, what I mean to say is was, this is not, this isn't back 500 years ago with the Pope in the time of Joan of Arc. This no. is in your family, in your in your time, and you're not that the old of a young lady? No. Yeah.
1: That's right. In fact, thank you. I love I love hearing that. Thanks very much, Pat. But well, you know, well, when, when, when you're when seventy, everybody's
0: learning. young.
1: <laughs> I was born in the seventies and in, in the seventies when I was born when my mother was having children and, and raising children, um, the 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 um, Indian Health Service acknowledged with their own data. Um, they have now acknowledged that in the 70s, they sterilized between 25 and 50% of Native American women in their care. In in one decade, in the 1970s, they involuntarily sterilized between a, a quarter and a half of all indigenous women in their care. So this this process of removing indigenous people from their lands, completely exterminating indigenous people has been a policy objective Um, from the start until today.
0: Could your father communicate with his parents?
1: You know, he didn't. um, He did not um, ever make that link and connection. When I was little, I remember him going back and looking and actually through the Catholic Church. But I was the one as an adult in my family that went and really started trying to build connections with the Tewa people back in, in the homeland and the place where his mother was from. So we never knew his mother um, or his family, um, his mother or father. Um, And then my father, you know, had a difficult life. He grew up exposed to um, extreme trauma, what I would call extreme trauma and then had difficulty in his adult life. And so um, ended up, ended up dealing with mental illness and not really able to, to manage that kind of a, of, of a search. And so that was the thing that I ended up doing later, especially when I became a mother myself and I wanted my son to be able to to know who he was and where he came from. But but I guess my point is, you know, 70% of Native Americans live in urban areas now. I mean, most of us don't live on the reservation. And this process of um, this diaspora of removing indigenous people from their lands and this process of assimilation, sort of sending them out to the four winds, is a process that has resulted in six million Indigenous people today, as opposed to you know however many there were at the turn of the century. I mean, we're we are a racial group that's getting smaller over time. Is
2: this story uh, all through the Americas, or is it unique to Canada and the U.S.? I mean, are there places that have a more a better a better story about how uh, the original people were treated?
1: So. Um, I'm not I can't speak for everyone, but I will say that this process of colonization, the process that, that of colonization that happened in the Pacific Northwest, you know, in 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 the eighteen eighties, or I'd say the nineteen twenties, with colonists coming in and, and establishing land and settling and displacing indigenous people, that is a process that's still going on in Central and South America. So, among Indigenous peoples today that are alive today, they are now undergoing militarization, forced removal, um, violent extermination. Um, that's happening now. And I really started to learn about the Doctrine of Discovery through working with Indigenous people in um, in the Guiana Shield, which is the northern region of the South American continent in Suriname and French Guiana. Um, these are rainforest people who are living in the Amazon basin. And living traditional lifestyles, who are being displaced by gold mining. So, as they were displaced, had no land rights, and were just, you know, dealing with massive contamination in their bodies and their communities, militarization, land grabbing, all of this kind of stuff. I just couldn't understand it. I thought, how could this be happening? And realized it was completely legal, perfectly legal, um, based on you know the doctrine of discovery and how how land is acquired in um, in what we now call the discovered world so so I, I don't know if there's a place where the story is better what i would say is that the story is different in different locations and ongoing but i would say that's really because of this this whole process of colonization which is rooted in what i would call extractive logic this idea that um, that territory and um, and resources are commodities to be exploited not a home environment in which to seek harmony. So for many indigenous people, um, the the idea of land is, is this sense of reality, understanding that we're dependent upon it and that we're mutually dependent with each other and with all the systems of life. And so it's sort of an indigenous you know, cosmology and, you know, you can't generalize your hundreds of indigenous nations in North America, but it, I would say that's a through line. It's a common understanding. And, um, and this extractive logic came in with this idea that, Oh, we have all you know this bountiful natural resources and we're just going to consume it and use it up. If we use it up, we just move on to the next place. You know, expansion is sort of this process of right. just consuming chewing through resources without any, um, care for the impact. And that logic goes on. That's That has not changed.
0: Well, there you go. That's You're describing one of the flaws of capitalism, you know, and by its nature. Um, I, I'm going to jump around a little bit here.
1: Sure.
0: Um, I have an article before me. The Vatican reputes the doctrine of discovery which was used to justify colonialism. So here's the Pope It renounces the mindset of cultural and racial superiority, which allows for objectification or subjugation of people and strongly condemns the attitude or actions that threatens to damage the dignity of the human person. That's the Pope. This is, what what are we here? We're in May. This is March 31st, 2023. So uh, there we go. It's all it's all solved. We kind of screwed up for five hundred years, and we're sorry, and we're making this right. And I don't think that's good enough. I, I I don't think of the Pope coming out and saying, you know, we were really kind of wrong about this. Um, sorry, and that goes back to your work. Of dismantling, not only call, call, calling attention to this, but also, what's the next step? I mean, we we've destroyed these people's lives. We've we've literally created quite a mess. And I don't think that thoughts and prayers that we kind of screwed up is is an, is enough. I don't know. What's your thought on that? Yeah.
1: Thank you for for asking. So. Um if you think about in our legal system here in the united states how eminent domain works so i'm talking about eminent domain this is where the government comes in and they're going to take a private resource for the public good right so they're going to they're going to build a road through your lawn let's say <laughs> they're going to build something that's supposedly for the public good according to eminent domain the the person who has lost that property has to be um, adequately compensated for that loss. If, if their livelihood is lost, they have to be adequately compensated for that loss. And so this is not a thing that is even considered as it, as it pertains to indigenous peoples, whose lives have been and continue to be destroyed by this extractive logic. And so from my point of view, the Catholic Church the, the Vatican has released a statement and, and that's great. I didn't expect to see that in my lifetime. There are activists who've been working on the Vatican for decades, to, you know, targeting and trying to build relationship and work on this. Um, but what I want to say about the Catholic Church is that they are the, the largest private land holder in the world. They own more property privately than any other entity in the world. The only other entities that have more land than the Catholic Church are governments And so they have an opportunity here to seek repair, which is not an apology. An apology is words. Seeking repair is actually looking for um, uh, uh, an actual negotiated um, compensation. Compensation is really the wrong word. Redress is what I'm looking for. So redress wrong. They have the opportunity now to do this with indigenous peoples around the world, not just in North America, but in Central America, South America, the Pacific, um, Africa, all over in Asia, where the Catholic church holds land. They have the opportunity to provide redress to indigenous peoples. And I'm not at all suggesting that they're going to give up all of the land that they hold, but I think this is an opportunity to engage in dialogue about what redress could look like. And so I think, I think we are now moving into that phase of repair, not just with the Catholic Church, but in general. And I think we have to be creative as we start to step into a conversation about repair. Um, and, and so in the context of our country, there are certainly lands and resources that are held um, by the federal government, that are held by states, where it's possible to begin a conversation about redress for losses to indigenous peoples um, because of the colonial project, this project of colonization. And I also want to say that is not just specific to indigenous people because the doctrine of discovery is also the policy basis for slavery.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, Greg and I aren't very religious and throughout your book is a really of loving form of christianity uh you mentioned the book of luke mandate of right and repair and i'm i'm thinking of i'm thinking about this and i'm thinking the i don't know who else would be doing this work than people who are liberal christians because you're you're taking you're using christianity there's two types of christians as far as i can see those who really you know believed in the followings of Christ the kind of the and then there's this new brand of evangelical that's a little bit uh, haywire uh, it, it doesn't quite make sense to me and throughout the book you use your belief in Christianity from the from the you know the the teachings of Christ in a real positive way of saying wait a second he talked about this, and this is how he would have fixed this. This is how we should be fixing things. Um, and I I thought it was really uh, a quite, um, it was what I enjoyed uh, almost the most about the book, is how you use that to, uh, almost in jujitsu, to, to go against for years and years and years, it was Christianity that was used to Create this misery and colonialism and extraction and dehumanization, and now you're using that same faith base to repair this. I, I am. Am I being a little too obtuse here, or what? What do you? What do you think?
1: Well, when we established the coalition, um, we said that what has been done in the name of Christ must be undone in the name of Christ. Uh huh. So, so this the 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 systems of colonization were put in place and justified with christianity and i believe it's people of faith who now being true to their own faith are responsible to dismantle it mm-hmm. and and of course anybody can engage in that work but i'm calling on the church specifically to do that um in in order to be true to um to discipleship of jesus Um, And this question is, are you who you say you are or not? You know, are you are you um, Constantine and bending this religion to your will so that you can build an empire, a world empire? Or do you actually um, believe in the teachings of Jesus, which is a completely different thing? I mean, in some ways, almost diametrically opposed to to this logic of empire.
2: Right. Yeah, but the logic of empire is the logic of capitalism. Um, I, I certainly don't want to be viewed as a defender of the Catholic Church, but these, these things may have been started in the name of Christianity, but they were not done in the interest of Christianity. They were done in the interest of private enterprises, five private uh, uh, commercial enterprises in the beginning and the later full-blown capitalist enterprises it seems to me they're the people that should be responsible for redress, not so much the Catholic Church. Maybe the Catholic Church could be, take a leadership role uh, as maybe the, perhaps the Pope has, I don't know. I think of a, a lot of this new Pope in spite of not being a, a religious person. But I really think you're kind of letting off the hook, the real perpetrator, and that's, that's a system of capitalism. You said it yourself when you used the word empire, it wasn't a Christian empire, maybe perhaps a name, but in substance, it was a capitalist empire right. that was created, I, a global capitalist empire.
1: So, Greg, I could not agree with you more. I absolutely agree with everything that you're saying. And so um, when when we see um, indigenous people's movements that are standing up in defense of um, environmental protection or community protection or the protection of sacred waters, they are often doing that in isolation. So indigenous people are standing up for their own interests and for their own communities and for for the systems of life, really. And by that, I mean, um, clean air and clean water and um, arable soils. When they are doing that, they're protecting the resources that we all of us depend on um, for life, right? And who is joining indigenous peoples in that endeavor? No one is the answer, typically. And so what I'm calling on the church to do is stand with indigenous peoples um as indigenous peoples lead this effort to address um, you know this extractive logic which has resulted in environmental degradation to the point where are we going to be able to remain on earth as human beings are we gonna are we going to completely destroy our environment to the point where we can no longer live here as a species? And so I'm calling on Christians to stand with indigenous people to do that so yes, I, it would be great if the Catholic Church would put their money where their mouth is and and engage in land return, but I'm also asking the church to be part of a movement globally to stop these, what I call the systems of death and systems of darkness that would seek to destroy um, life on earth as we know it, life on earth period. (laughs) Every life support system on earth is in decline. And I'm asking the Christian church to stand with indigenous people in opposing that. And so... I absolutely agree with you that this is private enterprise that's doing this, and at this point of of life, um, uh, uh, multinational corporations and those things were built by human beings, and they can be deconstructed by human beings. And they must be. I mean, this, the, the 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 individual actors aside, the systems that they're built on have to be reimagined. I mean, we have to we have to do this a different way. And so, I'm asking on the the church to unequivocally. Um, stand with the oppressed and say enough, stop this. You know there are indigenous people right now that are struggling for their very lives, um, and all over the place, including in the United States. And it's time for the church to show up and and really care about that, not so, with charity, but right. with their lives, with actual true solidarity.
0: Sarah, you told a wonderful story. I can't quite remember the, all of the details, but you went overseas to a you you came from a Mennonite tradition? Is that is that correct? Yep. Right. Yeah, I'm a Mennonite. Yeah. A- and and you went over overseas to a conference that was looking at some of these issues and there were a lot of larger ch- church or organizations and you were the only one that was an indigenous person and yet the topic was this, you know, th- this issue. And I, rem- I if I'm telling the story right, the first day you were just sort of, you know, chilled out. I mean, no one really listened to you. You weren't given any real respect or regard. And you went back to your motel room, thought about it. The next day came out and said, you know, no, wait a second, you're going to listen to me. Um, it seemed like there was part of the problem where all of these church organizations that had good intent, but they didn't really know how to respond to this and you uh schooled them a little bit in in that i I, what fill in the
1: details you bet it's great when you write your own book because you get to be the hero of every story (laughs) (laughs) so i think you're talking about when i was petitioning the royal council of churches which is the largest christian body uh, other than the catholic church on earth and so it has more than 350 Uh, member denominations in the World Council of Churches across the world. And I actually organized um, and all, you know, across every inhabited continent to get Indigenous people to their um, General Assembly in 2013 and petitioning them to really take seriously the Doctrine of Discovery beyond a statement. So their statement on the Doctrine of Discovery, I co-wrote it, they put it on their website and they basically said that's not enough putting it on the website is not enough <laughs> we need true commitment of staff and resources um, we have to do more than just say things we have to actually show up and do things and this is where the church uh, the institutional church gets stuck um, they have a harder time doing things and i would say um, that's in large part because um, churches like all organizations are heavily financially invested in resource extraction so um, a lot of retirement funds and, um, you know, the, the trusts and all of this are invested in extraction. So that's oil and gas and gold and uh, bauxite, copper, lithium, you know, so they're not really, they, they want to show up in a good way in words, but not really in deeds. And so, yeah, I, I have shown up in those spaces and really held folks' feet to the fire. And at the World Council of Churches General Assembly, you know, myself and other Indigenous leaders organized for two years to show up and be there. We showed up with 50 Indigenous delegates. And I think you're talking about this meeting where I met with the historic peace churches. Mm-hmm. And they were basically saying, you know, we can't get caught up on one issue. You know, we have to really think about anti-war. And that's we're not going to get distracted by you. <laughs> and I said, well, we're not an issue. We're a people with. You know, with a message of hope for humanity and humanity without hope. You know, give me a break. You can't just dismiss me and say that, you know, that yeah. that we can't be distracted by this issue. What other issue is there?
0: <laughs> that was <laughs> it was it was a great story of you getting upset, thinking about it and coming back the next day and squaring things away yeah. uh more lucidly. So that is that is part of it. Um uh, as long as I have you here, I need to get up some more information. You were on the redistricting committee for the state, which um tell tell me about tell me about that and how that ended.
1: yeah, I was the chair of the Washington State Redistricting commission, um, so I was appointed to that role um by, oh gosh, um I guess uh, let's see, probably Greg Wall yeah. Well, no, it was by um, our current governor. Um, okay. Because it was just this just happened. Um, well, let's see, the year before last. So, so, in the, so what happens um, for apportionment? Our constitution says every ten years we apportion, and um, so we do the big census. After um, the census, uh, then you do redistricting, where you figure out you want every district to be the same size, and um, someone has to draw the boundaries. Every state does this differently. In Washington State, we have a redistricting commission where there's a non-voting chair that was the role I was in, and then you have two Democratic appointees, two Republican appointees, or you know, the two largest parties have two appointees each. And then you spend basically a year trying to determine how to draw the boundaries. So boundaries are the are the source of gerrymandering. I'm sure um, many of your listeners are familiar with this question over gerrymandering. So the goal was to create maps um, as fairly as possible, um, following the interests of the the population and not any one political party. So that was the that was our task. And um, on my watch, we had the largest engagement effort in Washington state history. That was really important to me. So we hired organizers um, to get engagement, get the population engaged in redistricting. This is at a time where there's a high degree of cynicism towards um, any kind of, um, I don't know, I would say um, sort of uh, political engagement or towards government in general. And so I really believe in democratic institutions. So I wanted to engage as many people as possible. So in a state with 7 million people, we had input from a million people. Oh, and um, yeah, as a result of that, um, I think we did really good work. We had the very first time ever um, a a, um, a policy on tribal consultation. So we actually did consultation with tribes so that they would also have input in um, in the the boundaries in their area. But ultimately, the four voting commissioners are the ones who determine what those lines are. And so um, it was an amazing experience. Um, to be able to be part of that. Um, my, my goal was to ask uh, the four voting commissioners to, um, to place the common good above any of their own political interests. And I think we did get there. Ultimately, there, there was a consensus vote on the boundaries um, for the state. And um, most of the districts in Washington state were drawn with, um, I shouldn't say most all of the districts were drawn with a maximum amount of input from the people who live in them. And um, yeah, so um, it was a controversial map. I don't think um, there will ever be another map in Washington or any state that isn't controversial.
0: Right.
1: And I ultimately resigned um, from the redistricting commission because the, the party in power in Washington state from my point of view is did not really um, like how the maps uh, turned out. And so um, uh, when there was a federal suit filed um, by uh, a a group that felt that the lines were not fair, which is totally reasonable. We have the right to do that. Anybody can do that. Um, Washington State, uh, the the leaders um, refused to defend the maps. And so I absolutely um, had no respect for that and opposed that because so many people had put input into the maps. So um, they did not favor any political party. I think there was heartburn on all sides in terms of how the, the final maps were drawn. And so, um, you know, the, the, the leaders of the state didn't, didn't end up liking how they looked, but they were actually, um, the, the federal court then um, said, well, too bad, you have to defend them. <laughs> so, so there's a the case now, um, it's still pending in federal court. Uh, so it'll be heard sometime this summer.
0: Well, but, you did. Yeah, you, I re- you did a very nice article to the Times expressing that, and it certainly there was a lot of integrity it was was exemplified by your your work there. That's for sure. So thank
1: you,
0: Greg. You got any final
2: thoughts? Well, I'm just curious about uh, just some facts. I mean, how does the uh, currently? How does this country recognize indigenous people? Is there any formal legal representation? I and mean, how do they? How do how do we see we being the government, being the the leaders? How do they see uh, uh, Native American peoples? I mean, is they have, what's the status? What's the legal status? Mm-hmm.
1: So those tribes that are federally recognized um, have a a. Um, uh, subordinate status to the federal government, so the government, the federal government is the custodian of those dependent states. That's the idea, or they're not really states, but those dependent entities, which would be federally recognized tribes. And so, um, you know, reservations are those those entities that have um, sovereignty. Sovereignty is the right of a government body um, to govern itself, which is what tribes have federally recognized, tribes have um, limited sovereignty. Um, while they they have that status, they are not represented in Congress, as we all know. And so that's a function of our constitution. So Native American people are not represented. Um, so of course, anybody can vote um, wherever they live in the country, um, but that's not true representation. If we just had open, um, you know, open elections in this country. So imagine there are no states and everybody just votes as an individual. Um, you know, political power would be gained um, in different and various ways um, by region and especially by regions where there's, there's larger populations. So we have states, that's the way we have. States also have sovereignty and they have the right to make decisions and, you know, um, legislate for their own boundaries. And so, and those states are then represented in Congress, but that's not the way it is for Native American people. Um, so I would say Native American people are not represented. Um, and even and though individuals can vote, that's not the same thing.
2: And, 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 and they've never reversed that decision. The land is still owned by the government, but the, the Native American people distinction that was made by Marshall, is that still the case? There's not ownership of the reservation, formal ownership?
1: So, so I'm not a lawyer, and I'm going to be careful about how I proceed here. It, the way it works is that that land is held in trust by the federal government. So it's held in trust. So it really mm-hmm. depends on how you look at it. I mean, um, ultimately, every tribe has a custodian, and that custodian is the federal government. So mm-hmm. the final say, the ultimate decision, is still a federal is still made by the federal government. And, um, and that's, you know, that's challenging that that is, that is challenging. So um, there is some discussion, I would say john McCain, when he was living, you know, had a proposal that we should just end all Native American tribes and, you know, just pay people off. Just say it's all over. There's no longer tribes, we're not gonna have subordinate states anymore. That's certainly not how most Native Americans Uh, would like it and by that I mean also tribal governments want to retain sovereignty over their own lands um, and to even if it's limited sovereignty but I think there is a desire of course to have um, to have self-determination to be able to decide for yourself what's going to happen among your own people and on your own lands.
0: Well the Bureau of Indian Affairs with Education they don't necessarily do a they don't do a very good job. I, I was doing, I was working out at Chief Leshai doing an in-service and we were at groups and there was a, of teachers. There was a teacher there who was, had been there for five years and he said he's one of the longest uh, tenured teacher at the school. And I'm thinking, wow. uh, why? Well, because they don't have very good retirement systems for teachers. So after teachers go into to the school there, if the if a job opening opens up at one of the public schools, they're they're out because the the, the retirement system is you, you just don't stay there for long periods of time. And I'm and-
2: I've read, read about the uh, healthcare system on the reservations. Uh, it's different, isn't it? Is it not? It's different. It's they're not part of the ACA or the overall national healthcare system. Is that correct?
1: So. There is an Indian Health Service which falls under um, Department of the Interior, um, I believe.
2: So it's administered by the Department of Interior, and it's funded by the federal government.
1: I believe that's true, but, but one I of the things it's not that,
2: really well funded, and it's not.
1: Yeah, one of the things I would say about that is that is by treaty, um, and so. But many people talk about the government benefits that Indians get, and I'm not sure it's really benefits. You know what I mean? So when you have a treaty, that's a contract. And um, when your contract is paid out, that's not sort of large S or, or a benefit. It's, it is a contractual obligation. So yeah, the Indian Health Service was put in place as a, as a means of meeting contractual obligations to the federal government.
0: Sarah, you're a breath of fresh air. You've got a great book. What's next? What's your next book?
1: Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm working on a book now. It's due to be out in October and it's called So We and, My, Our, so we and Our Children May Live, Following Jesus and Confronting the Climate Crisis. And uh, Greg, in this book, we take on capitalism. That's really uh, good. good. Capitalism and the
2: Economy. For sure. We'll have yeah, to have so, you back for that.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We're just we're just finishing final edits now with the publisher. And so as we're talking, I'm just thinking, oh, gosh, I wish we were talking about that book. <laughs> so so of thinking, connecting are, book.
0: Are, you, are you done with it? Are you in the final stages? Yeah. You...
1: It's, it's written, and now we're just going through edits.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, definitely. Will, will you come back and chat with us about that?
1: Yes. You can Ooh. pre-order it if you wish. Um, no pressure. Uh, it okay. is available uh... for pre-order.
0: Good and you're are you gonna are you gonna yell at me about owning an electric car and how how the batteries just probably as bad as the oil when it comes to extracting uh, extracting minerals from the earth.
1: I will yell at no one. Okay. And good. just just oh, as gosh. a little teaser, I'm really curious about how we can have a you know a a, a policy. For a green economy that does not include any kind of mass transit, yeah, that makes no sense Agreed. to me at all.
0: Agreed. Okay. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the day. And boy, this has been a fun conversation.
1: Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk with you. And gosh, I've just really enjoyed it. So good to mm-hmm. spend time with you, Greg and Pat. All
2: right. Bye. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.